You know, if Jesus was writing a letter, which he did, to a little church called Laodicea, that's what it would have said. Do not forsake me because I love you. They were pursuing gold and they were pursuing all kinds of other abundance. And yet he said, wow, but what does it mean to be really loved? That's how I feel towards you. Which is why today in Sleuth we find ourselves in the crime scene of Laodicea in the case of the fleeting fortune. We've been talking about how to study the Bible in this series, and today ends the series using a three-part process of observation, using Sherlock Holmes-type observations in a passage. Then we go to interpretation, what's the principle that applied then that applies now, and then application, how do you play it out in your life. Today we find ourselves in Laodicea, and we have uncovered this ancient writing from Jesus to a church in this area of Turkey that says, To the Laodiceans write, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I have no need of nothing. But you do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor and blind and naked. So I want to give you some counsel. Buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be really rich in white garments that you might be clothed. So we're going to do four observations, just four little pieces we're going to drill down on to make observations on. The first one is why does Jesus use the metaphor of hot and cold here in Laodicea? Well, let's begin with the word cold. Interesting, the area of the country of Laodicea is in is an area where there are three cities near each other. Those three cities include Laodicea, Colossae, and Heropolis. So if here's a, a picture of Heropolis. And you can see in the background where the arrow is, they're pointing to Laodicea. On the overview map, you can see that Laodicea and Heropolis are near each other. So they were very aware of each other. They pumped water back and forth from each other. And what's interesting is they had here in Heropolis an incredible venue for cold drinking water. One of the largest in the uh, ancient world. In fact, they had gigantic cold baths that the Romans and Greeks put together. Always a place of immorality. It was a worship of Pan where we get panic or pan, pandemonium and Artemis. This is places where men and women came together in a military st- town meets Vegas and, and swam in the cold baths. But the water was drinkable, which made it have some good use despite what was going on here in the city. Now, just to give you a, a scope of how big this is, here's a photograph with a guy who was with us on the trip. He's in the bottom. Just to give you a, the size and scope of these gigantic cold baths. Remember, the cold water, they had to go find it and pump it in through an incredible piping system in Laodicea because there was no drinking water there. So the cold water was good because you could drink in it, but it was used for something bad, immorality and this Vegas-style worship of Pan and, and Artemis. So Jesus is affirming something about the cold water and why they're not hot or cold. Let's jump over to exhibit B. And he mentions hot several times. Look here in the passage. He says hot, he says hot, he says hot. He says you're not hot and you're not cold. Now why does he mention hot? Another interesting part of this passage is that here, if you walk through the Heropolis, you think you're walking through a snow-covered area of Utah maybe. But that's not snow and that's not ice. Those are gigantic calcium deposits mixed with magnesium. There's an underground fountain there that people travel all over the world today to still be part of. 
At the time of the writing of this letter, those waters were 126-degree hot springs coming out of the water and dropping deposits of calcium and magnesium over the mountainside, forming what looks like snow in the picture. Let me show you another photograph, just to give you an idea of how much the hot water of Laodicea was spread out. It creates these incredible glaciers and produces its own little hot tubs. So as the glaciers form, they create encrustments, and then you can actually sit and get in the hot tub. And from all over the world, even today, even though the temperature has dropped down to 100, they say that you're able to... Let me show you this one. They, they say even today you're able to get 100 degrees. When I was there, the water was about 100 degrees coming out of the water. If you trace those waters that form these different areas back to its source, there was an underground spring that they just uncovered a few years ago that was built on top of it was the Temple to Hades. You've heard about Hades? This is the Gate of Hades. They called it that, the plutonium, if you're a Roman. On the right-hand side, you see a hole in the ground. Smoke and sulfur would come out from the area. And they built a temple to Hades. And they said this hot water that brings healing to our body through the calcium and the minerals and warms us up when we're cold, this is the source of Hades itself. And that's what went on here in Laodicea. So keep in mind, used for bad, but hot water had a good purpose. Cold water had a good purpose. The problem is, just a few miles away... Actually, let me show you one more picture. Here's a, a backdrop. There's a, a temple, one of the gigantic theaters there in, in Heropolis. And from Heropolis, if you overlook, you can actually see both the cold baths there with the blue area and the hot baths are there where I'm pointing to the red. So in this temple to Artemis that we learned about in week one of the series, we learned that this too was a, a, a celebration of sensuality and not faithfulness. And this whole culture, this whole town was about either hot or cold, but really it was about indulging in self. That's what the whole city was about. Well, five miles away in Laodicea, where this letter's written, they need water. So they have to pump the water from Heropolis over there to Laodicea. The problem is, instead of pumping just the cold water, they decide to pump the hot water too. And it clogs up the pipes over years to get completely clogged because of all the calcium deposits. And this fountain on the right now looks like a giant pile of rocks because they mix the cold drinking water with the calcium deposits of the hot water and ultimately destroyed their fountain. It's all there in Laodicea. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus would write a letter to a group of people who are very familiar with both hot and cold water. And he says, you're not being cold and you're not being hot. You've mixed the two and clogged up your pipes, so to speak. So that's exhibit B, hot water. What does that mean for us when we go to apply this? Exhibit C, he says, you say you're rich and you're wealthy and you don't need anything. Fascinating. This place, Laodicea, was known as the treasury department of the Roman Empire. This is one of the three places, or two places rather, that they printed the Roman coins. On the coins in Laodicea, it actually said things like, we have no need of anyone, or we take care of ourselves, or we did it ourselves, might be a literal translation. We'll talk about why it said that. But the coins themselves say the very thing that Jesus referenced in writing to them. Now, why does he say we did it ourselves? Well, because somewhere between 16 and 17 A.D., there's an earthquake. As they've uncovered the archaeological find here, they find all the pillars fall the same direction because of the tremor that came from the earthquake. When this thing fell apart, 
they had to decide, could they rebuild their abundance? Could they rebuild their city? Well, the Roman government steps in and offers them some help because their theater was destroyed. I mean, look at this massive outdoor theater. So Rome writes, the emperor writes, and says, hey, we'll send you some money to help rebuild your city. And they write back to the Roman emperor, we did it ourselves. We have no need of nothing. We'll take care of ourselves. The very phrase that Jesus is referencing was the motto of the city. We did it ourselves. We have no need of anything. Now, a church was built right here in this area. This church was trying to bring about a whole new way of thinking about life in a city that was using its wealth and building things that would ultimately fall apart. And God turns to a city known for its medicine, known for its treasury, known for its abundance, and says, buy gold from me. One of the only places in the ancient world that's ever been found is this artifact. If you look carefully at it, you will see hidden in the photograph are several images. Now, if you can't see it, we're going to apply some black light and look deeply into what is in this image. I'll enlarge it in a second. But it's interesting that in this particular place in history, at this particular time, in a culture that was totally antagonistic toward the, the teachings and the characteristics of God, there was this pillar that was found. In fact, we got a chance to walk over to it and touch it. And in this pillar is embedded two images. And these two images can be found when we apply black light. So I'll turn on the black light so you can see exactly what's going on here in the photograph. You see, in ancient days, the Christians did not use a cross as their main symbol. Instead, they used a anchor. Because to be a follower of Jesus was to have your soul anchored in eternity, to be anchored in the God of the Bible. More than that, it was a menorah combined with a cross. In that culture, if you were Jewish, the idea of being Jewish and Christian was very common, unlike today, after all the terrible things that happened in history. So they're showing our faith in Jesus is an outgrowth of our belief in the menorah or the Old Testament. This is what anchors us to truth. This is what anchors us to peace and to what really matters. So with a few observations from the past, we find something pretty intriguing here. We find that in a culture of abundance, in a culture of great wealth and power, I'll put this one up here, Jesus shows up and says, hey, you got abundance, but you're missing out on real abundance. I want to teach you how to move from your culture's focus on upgrading and getting more and more a fleeting fortune to really finding what matters. I want you to hear the story of Pat and Bill. Pat and Bill would be two guys who are having this conversation that Jesus had with Leo to say it today, and what it means to find real abundance in the midst of abundance. Let's watch. Pat shows up unannounced at my door. I didn't know him from Adam. And uh, my door's open. I'm talking to a customer. And not being very nice to the customer. <laughs> and Pat hears me being very loud and boisterous to the customer. And he ends up, says, I need to move on and I'll come back. So Pat leaves. And in a couple hours, he does come back the same day. And he started talking about having a Bible study and I said listen I don't want to hear anything about being saved I'm not interested I don't this mumbo jumbo no no 
When Bill and I first uh, got started, uh, one of the things that was uh, reasonably clear that he uh, did not have a clear understanding of the scripture, did not have a personal relationship with Christ, wasn't sure what that was, uh, was chasing his career, uh, considered himself really good at what he did, uh, and he is, and yet frustrated because of going through what was going on in the economy at the same time. Uh, he ended up working with a lot of his clients over the years who had been successful, now having failed during the economic meltdown, and he's needing to go in from the bank's perspective and, and deal with them, and in many cases some really harsh things took place with clients, and that was hard for him. You put out empty threats, you'd make them feel guilty. You borrowed the money, but you don't want to pay it back. You were tough on, on people. You really were. Uh, once I, I, Christ entered my heart and, and started teaching me, Bill, there are other ways about to go about this. How is he working through all of that when what he wanted to do was to help people and, and build this career up? And then where was God in the middle of that? And so it led to some great conversations. When it happened, I really don't know. I, I can't. I can't pin the date down. I just remember it was it was an aha moment, and, and, and our group started talking about this. And I said, "Wait a minute." So I shouldn't be tough on these people, but be compassionate. Well, realizing from a business standpoint that he could uh, still represent the, the bank clearly, but could be open and honest with the, the folks in choices that they have, how they should handle the difficulties they're in financially, he could actually begin to start to counsel them and not just come in as a hard-nosed banker, but he could become their friend through the process of that, which started to take away some of the guilt he was feeling and that he didn't create the situations but he could be part of uh, assisting them in working through it in a God-honoring way. He started to realize that, that from God's perspective, how he sees him through Christ, that I can do all things through Christ, and started to, like we all do probably, test it a little bit, and God was just stirring him, the reality of, of who God is in his life, and he has a plan and a purpose, and whether it's work, whether it's out fishing with his buddies, whether it's uh, out on the golf course, it's all integrated together. It's this, uh, this new life in Christ. And so Bill started living that. So I've been doing the Bible study now for about three or four years. My relationship with my wife has probably grown tenfold. Uh, today, Bill is... Um really being transformed. He's, he's Romans 12, 1 and 2, that he understands about presenting his body as a living sacrifice. And as you know, and that goes on and talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's very much into that, that transformation. He's ministering to his wife, uh, encouraging her, uh, speaking into his daughter's lives. And as I say, he's, uh, he's inviting others to get involved. Uh, to understand what this journey of getting to know God is all about. I, I truly believe that I was a dead man for many, many years until I let Jesus come into my heart. How 
incredibly powerful to open your heart and let them in. So what's fascinating is there you see a banker with abundance beginning to find deeper purpose by somebody introducing him to a man named Jesus. That's exactly what's going on in Laodicea. Jesus is talking to a group of bankers, the treasury of the day, and saying, let me introduce you to how you can find real meaning and purpose in the midst of your abundance in your career. So that's the observation. And we've talked about a couple books you can use, since you're not, you, know, you don't have Chad dressed up like Sherlock to do it. Um, blueletterbible.org, we talked about it was a website. We talked about a New King James Study Bible that have these kind of observations in the, in the notes for you. Or a book available outside called How to Study the Bible and Really Enjoy It to begin to make these observations. Then we move to application, and that is where we want to find the bridge. All right, we don't have hot and cold baths. We don't have Artemis. We don't have a treasury here in Cincinnati. What does it mean in their town, and what is the principle that applies to our town? So that's next slide. That's what we're trying to look for. What is the principal bridge that bridges from their town to our town? And this is where, once we're done with this series, a typical sermon starts in our exploring service. We don't always dig into this stuff. This is what we do every week in our equipping service. We dig into the cultural context more, and, and we really want to dig into what it meant in their town before we apply it to our town. So in this case, we'll pull out the magnifying glass, and I'll tell you where I got the principle for today. The principle for today, because you say, Jesus says, you're rich and wealthy and don't need anything, but you don't know that underneath what you all that abundance, there's actually some wretchedness and misery, some poor, some blindness and nakedness. So I want to tell you, I want to counsel with you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be really rich, the kind of purpose that sinks up with your abundance. So my principle I found that applied to them and us would be the abundance you seek may be hiding the abundance you sought. What does that mean? Well, think of it this way. Often we get more and more stuff, and it's not that we wanted more stuff. We thought the more stuff, we were seeking more stuff in hopes of having more abundance, right? But haven't you found that sometimes the more stuff you get, it ends up causing stress on your life and more stress on your marriage because now you're managing both houses, you're managing all those employees, you're managing. So the things you sought would bring you more joy and more deep and more meaning ended up hiding the abundance you really sought because now you're more stressed with the more stuff can't tell you how many folks over the years have told me what we sought was a great second half. What we did is we built our dream house. And the abundance we were seeking, the great second half, got stressed out because we got so mad at each other building our dream house. We actually almost got divorced through the process of building the house. The abundance we sought was almost destroyed by the abundance we were seeking, the house. Nothing wrong with savings accounts. Some of us have said, hey, I want to build up to a place in savings. But we really wanted, what we were really seeking with that abundance of the savings account was security. But then we got our savings up to that point, whatever that point was for you. It was a quarter of a million dollars. It was a half million dollars. It was two million dollars. You got, you got to that place, and what you were seeking was security. But now that your money got up to that level, you find yourself stressed out all the time, checking your stocks all the time, because now you have so much to lose. The abundance you were seeking was security. That's what you sought. But in the getting it, you lost the peace in the midst of it. That's what's going on here. In all of their abundance, there's this hide-and-seek game going on. For some of us, we buy nice cars. Nothing wrong with nice cars. But what we're really seeking is, is something new to get rid of the boredom, something flashy, something 
fresh. And yet in that new car, in that new upgrade, there's less margin. We've got to work more to make the payments on it. There's less margin financially. There's less margin in our workplace. So there's four ways in which this passage talks about how abundance, the abundance we seek, can hide the abundance we sought. Four aspects of hide and seek. And my hope is that you'll be able to have abundance, but also have the abundant life in your abundance. First aspect is abundance can hide apathy. Sometimes just under the abundance of time, the abundance of possessions can be apathy. We're, we're, we're good at our job, but just a little bored, if we're honest with ourselves. We worked really hard to get to retirement. We made it a year, two years into retirement, and now we're like, well, now what? Our greatest conversation at lunch is what we're going to have for dinner. We're bored. The abundance of time brought boredom. We, we lack purpose or passion, a white-hot why in our life. And, and so we go to a catalog and upgrade, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's underneath that, we're wondering, is there a deeper meaning or purpose that we should be doing with the time we have? That was exactly what was happening in Laodicea. It was a great town, a military town that had great luxury. It had great medical doctors. I'll talk about that in a moment. It had great wealth with the treasury. It was a great city. And yet, it underneath had a lot of apathy. A lack of purpose, a lack of meaning. They gave themselves sensuality and that lasted for a while and at some point they wanted actual intimacy in their relationships. And what they had done, the church themselves, is they too had mixed and matched. They said, I want a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of abundance. I'm going to take a little bit of God and a little bit of immorality. And they mixed it together. And instead of being cold and having the refreshing drink of knowing what it was to have God's value system flowing through them, they decided to mix it in with the hot waters, the hot, toxic calcium, magnesium waters, and they became lukewarm. And that's, I think, what it is to be apathetic, right? You're not hot and you're not cold. You're just sort of there going through the motions. And often abundance can hide that apathy and that boredom in our life. Because doesn't abundance, the abundance of time, that's what abundance does. Sometimes it steals your time as you're trying to keep track of all the stuff you have, manage all the stuff you have. Sometimes it gives you too much time and now you've got lots of time on your hands, but not a purpose behind the time. Again, look at this photograph of the, the fountains. A lot of luxury, even today. Nothing wrong with luxury. God loves comfort. God loves luxury. God loves convenience. But if your life becomes all about comfort and convenience, you do that long enough and you say, is that all there is? It's good. I love it. But is there more? Is there a greater vision or purpose to what I should be about? Bob Buford owned a multi-million dollar industry in the telecommunication business. He sat down at the second half of his life and wrote a book called Second Half, or Halftime rather. He had a consultant came in and said, well, Bob, what do you want to do with the second half? He said, I'm not sure. He said, I love making money in business, and I love God and Jesus. He says, both are equally important to me. Consultant said, that's great. Both are great. It's great to have a great business. It's great to have abundance, and it's great to love God. But to create a plan for the next half, you've got to tell me what goes in the box. If these two end up in conflict with each other, which one's going to trump which? And Bob decided that his second half was going to be about, like you saw in that banker's life, I'm going to make what God wants from my life more important 
than just seeking money. I still want to seek money. I still want to run a good business. But I really want to find a deeper purpose in my life. And that's what he did. In fact, later in the service, you're going to hear the story of Renee Lockie. She had the same thing. She was 37 years old, had a great career, great workplace. She'd accomplished all the goals she set out for herself as a doctor. But she was just a little bored. If you looked at her life, you'd say she's the American dream. But she said, I realized I needed to find a deeper purpose. The abundance I had was hiding a, an apathy in me, a lukewarmness in me. The second aspect that abundance can hide is not just apathy, but abundance can hide or disguise real needs. I mean, take a travel with me. We're going to go in a car together and we're going to travel through Belize and Cancun and Monterey. You're going to see some of the poorest of poorest villages in the world. And you have a real sense of their need, their need for food, their need for water, their need for help, their need for housing. Then hop in a car and drive with me through Indian Hill, through Terrace Park, through Marymount and our our community. Do you have a sense that there's real need? No, because of the abundance of the homes or the abundance of the roads we have or or the malls we have or the restaurants we have, you would think that there aren't as many real needs. Yet I would propose to you that there's just as much loneliness in a big house as there can be in a small house. There can be just as much marital tension in Belize as there can be in Indian Hill. There can be just as much lack of purpose in Monterey as there can be. And often the abundance of things hides the real needs behind it. That when we get lonely or when we get honest or when we look ourselves in the mirror, we say, man, I... All is not good. I look pretty. My cars look pretty. My house looks pretty. But all is not good in my soul. This summer, my daughter and my wife both turned to me several times and said, Chad, you seem restless. I'm always that way. They said, no, more than normal. And I sort of discounted it. And then I I realized uh, more so than usual. So I was writing in my journal... And I said, yeah, as I'm beginning to see the symptoms in my life, I have abundance of activity going on. And I realized that in that abundance of activity, even abundance of success, things going well at the church and things going well in my life, in that abundance, I wasn't taking time to look underneath the surface. It was hiding some real needs. I began to reflect, and I haven't got them all down. I'm just beginning to reflect. I'm restless as I'm mourning taking my daughter to college today for the first time, my firstborn, and I haven't fully processed that. As I began to think about that need, I realized that my mom, who's going through a depression right now, has not been in a depression since I left for college 20-something years ago. I realized there's some fears in me, fear that maybe I would go through a depression, and I don't think that's the case, but there's fears in me. And in my abundance of activity, I've kept myself busy, not reflecting on what does it mean to mourn? What does it mean to change? What does it mean to, to face those fears? Well, these are what was going on in Laodicea. The abundance was hiding the real needs to process this stuff, their fears, their, their self. Not really indulgence, just their don't need anybody else but ourselves. Look what it says in the passage. It says here in Laodicea, because you're saying to yourself, I've got abundance, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I don't need anything. 
But you don't know. That abundance has hidden your real needs. You don't even know that underneath all that good stuff, there's some misery, if you're honest. There's some poorness. There's some blindness. You've got some blind spots. There's some nakedness. He's actually quoting what they were literally saying in their documents with a passage from the Old Testament in Hosea. In Hosea it said, Surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself and all my labors. Because I found wealth and riches, I don't need anything. But I'm just telling you, the more I've walked with people through a journey, the more I find the abundance of time, the abundant possessions, doesn't always bring happiness. Sometimes it just hides those needs. One of the reasons we do so many mission trips around here is because when you come face to face with real poverty, what you find is not just the real poverty. You actually find that sitting above their poverty is what you're really after. Real gratefulness, real joy, real meaning, real connection. And every time people go on mission trips, they say, I got more out of it than I gave because they have what I was seeking. The abundance I seek has Hidden the abundance I sought. They have found what I sought. They have the joy and peace. And they have nothing. I mean, travel with me on a a mission trip. Look at this one. So this is our high school team went down this year. And they were actually painting this building and building this swing set. But if you look just behind the swing set, you'll see a soccer field. I got a chance to be part of a, a men's team that went down in February and built that soccer field. It was just a big mud hole. We moved thousands of tons of, of sand and put in a professional soccer field. And, and the men came back from that and said, oh, my goodness, of all the things I could have done with my time and my money, I was so glad to write a check to put a soccer field in place rather than another lake house or a nicer lake house because this is going to change this community forever. And then we sent a group of high school students down to that very place. The building was just bricks when I was there, and now they're painting it. And just a few weeks ago, we sent a college team down. And the college team came down, and they're also working with the kids. And this will be a place that we're partnering with as a church, that we are helping the kids, we are helping the community, we are doing powerful things in Monterey as well as we're doing in Belize. But there's something far greater that goes on in these trips. Do we help people? Without a doubt. But we don't just help the people who are there, we help the people who go. Because when you go on a mission trip, and we're starting to plan for next year's mission trips if you're interested... You show up and you realize, and it happens in many different ways, you say, wow, the abundance in my life is hiding some lack of peace and joy. I want to start pursuing what they have in a deeper way when you return. This guy named Henry Nowen, he was a Harvard grad, divinity school, sought after speaker, incredibly sought after because he was sort of doing the circuit. Oh my goodness, you've got to hear Henry Nowen. He was writing the books. He was speaking at different events. He couldn't even keep his calendar together. He had an abundance of, of demand on him. And at the peak of his career, he quit it all. And he went and lived with the mentally handicapped in a men's home. I think it's called Daybreak. And he realized in the first six months he was there... Just how much his abundance of resume, his abundance of activity, his abundance of accolades was keeping him from developing the things that really made him human. He writes a lot about this. As I realized when I came face to face with a mentally handicapped man, he didn't know what Harvard was or care. He didn't care that I was a sought after speaker or what I wrote in my last book. I realized what he needed was for me to encourage him and I didn't know how to encourage. I didn't know how to comfort I didn't know how to connect. 
All my abundance was hiding the fact that I was horrible at these relational skills that really mattered. A Christian writer by the name of uh, Philip Yancey came and visited him one day and watched him spend three hours one morning dressing his friend Adam. After Henry dressed Adam and, and took him off to the next activity, Philip Yancey pulled him aside and said, do you ever think about what you gave up for this? I mean, it's nice that you're helping him, but you could be impacting thousands or millions. And instead, you helped a guy get dressed for three hours. And Henry said, you think Adam is getting the benefits of our friendship, but I have received far more from our friendship than he has. See, I have learned that what I was lacking could be developed. I know now how to connect, how to comfort. I've come face to face with my own fears and insecurities that I'd hidden underneath the abundance of everything I'd accumulated. I'm also learning that God loves me, not for what I do, not for what I accomplish, not for all the resume that I've built. In the same way that I love Adam, I'm learning that God loves me for who I am. It's priceless. Some of the same things God's been teaching me over the last six years with a special needs son. We've been teaching Quinn to speak for the last year, real specifically, and he's gone from no words to one word to two words. He's up to three word phrases now. Probably has, I don't know, maybe 70 words, maybe more. Just shocking, just amazing what God has done in the midst of it. And I'm not quite where Henry is. I'm not quite ready to say that if I could talk to myself seven years ago, I would say it's worth it. Maybe that makes me a terrible person, but I'm just trying to be honest. I'm not quite as spiritual as Henry is, but I do know for sure that under the abundance of time and convenience, I, I look forward to this day when my kids would begin to transition into empty nests and I'd have my wife to myself rather than have a special needs child for the rest of my life. It's a very different vision that I wrestled with seven years ago. But I'll tell you this, I'm glad I did it. There's little moments where God teaches me the same thing. I love to accomplish. I love to check off boxes. I love to do stuff. And God is teaching me what Henry learned, that underneath abundance are real needs. Every night, Quinn will grab my hand and he'll drag me up the stairs. And as he drags me up the stairs, we'll get into his bed and he'll throw his blanket over his face. And then he'll peek out with this big grin and smile that will just make you laugh. He'll say, so you want to kiss? I'll get down in his face and he'll just have a big smile and I'll give him a kiss. And for the last three months I've been saying, I love you. He'll say, and I'll kiss him again. And in the last month, when I kiss him, he'll say, I love you. And it has never felt so good to be loved. And I have learned that I don't love Quinn for what he can accomplish or what he will accomplish. I love him for who he is. And the same way God says he adopts us into his family, and we find out that we are a lot more like Quinn than we are like our accomplished resumes. There's a lot more hurt. There's a lot more pain. There's a lot more ways in which we don't know if we know what we're doing all the time. But our abundance can hide those insecurities. And, and God often will peel that back to help us because he loves us. He wants us to teach us the real things that really matter. That's our third aspect of abundance. Abundance can hide real value. It can make us think that, that this is more valuable than that. That certainly was happening here. He says, 
you spent years building up this beautiful theater and in one day an earthquake destroyed it. The things that you thought had incredible value got totally destroyed. So I'm not against economics. I'm not against business. I'm not against health. I'm not against industry. I'm just saying buy things, invest in things that really last, Jesus says. In Philadelphia, in this, I think it was in the 60s, there's two uh, kids who decided to sneak into a retail store. So they snuck in through the window. They spent all night rummaging around, but they never stole anything. They snuck back out. Little did the retailer know that what they did do is change the price tags on everything. So the next day, there was an incredible sale for some as they came in and were able to, for two bucks, buy a brand new stereo. In fact, it said that the store operated for several hours before they realized what happened. Somebody switched the price tags. That's what's going on in this culture. That's what's going on in our culture. People have switched the price tags. Things that matter have gotten a low price tag, like faithfulness and generosity and joy and peace and contentment. And lack of worry and and things that don't have as much value that cause anxiety and stress have gotten a high price tag. We pay a lot and we get a lot of stress. What we sought, peace, was hidden by what we got. That's why it's interesting what Jesus says here. It's really amazing what he says. In this area, number one, remember, they had the treasury. They made coins here in Laodicea. Second thing, they had a textile industry there where they made textiles, they made clothes, they, they dipped clothes, and often it was a black garment you would get if you came to Laodicea. Also, because of the magnesium in the water, they would often use it as an eye salve. And so you would come, if you had eye issues, the doctors would actually use the mineral water and put it on your eyes, and it, it is said that that was helpful in some way. So Jesus speaks to a culture of medicine, of economics, and of money, And he doesn't say any of those are bad. He just says, buy from me, incorporate into those things the gold that really lasts. Look what he says. Buy from me the gold that's refined in fire, that burns away the stuff that doesn't matter. I want you not to wear the black garments of your culture, but put on white garments. What would it mean to wear my purpose in your industry and in your workplace? Instead of putting on the medicine, the eye salve from your culture, what would it look like as a doctor, as a nurse, as a banker, as we saw earlier, to play out the principles of compassion and people-centeredness right where you are. What would that look like? Anoint your eyes with eye salve. Let me show you your real needs underneath your abundance. Let me help you discover who you really are. There's a waiter named Brendan, I think, or Brandon. Next slide's got a picture of him. There he is. Brendan got to experience somebody who has decided in his second half he wants to inspire people to accomplish a greater sense of purpose, but he wants to do it anonymously. Brendan was a waiter, and he walked over to his table one day. It was just another day of the job, and as he picked up the receipt, he saw the guy walk off. And the guy had signed the receipt, tips from Jesus, and he'd added an extra $1,000 to the tip. But here's the receipt. He wrote him a note. I hope this tip helps you. My hope is that people were more peaceful to each other. The world can be so negative and violent. I commit random acts of kindness to a lot of others that they will know there's another way. Peace be with you, brother. In fact, there's actually an Instagram or Snapshot channel or mate's Twitter set up for all the people all over the world as he travels who he just blesses with random acts of kindness. What would it look like 
for you to just look at your current life and incorporate an other-centered, greater purpose, greater vision to what you're currently doing. See, our last aspect of hide-and-seek is that abundance can hide real intimacy. It's interesting what Jesus offers in this passage. He says, if you start to buy the gold from me and, and begin to see things, people, the way I see things, and you begin to look at your industry as white garments wearing my garments, I will... Think of it like I'm standing at the door and knocking. I won't force myself into your life, but if you invite me in, I will come in and dine with you and you with me. Now, this idea was a very intimate connection. There was an intimacy of saying, I'm not just going to be religious and go through rituals. No, God wants to dine with you, to be with you, to do life with you, to relate with you, to connect with you. God wants real intimacy in your life with him, in your marriages, in your connections. But often abundance can hide real intimacy. It's easier just to sort of cross on by each other. I'm busy, you're busy, did you get this done, I got this done, and we don't ever really get to the real stuff. Jesus says, I, I want you to have real intimacy, the stuff that really matters. And if you will overcome this obsession with abundance without real abundance... I'm going to grant to you real power. You get to sit on the throne with me. Because I overcame, and I sat down with the Father on his throne. It's an interesting book that Beth and I have been through, I think, four times, five times now in our marriage. It's called Intimate Encounters. The book describes a problem with abundance and why it affects real intimacy in marriage. It says that often there's couples who are codependent. You know, one person needs the other person, the other person enables the other person. And codependence is a real problem. There's been plenty written on that. But he said a problem that is rarely talked about is independence. Independence is when you don't need anything. As Laodicean said, we have no need of anything. You don't really share needs. So your spouse doesn't need you. And, and they don't really share needs with you because you have two independent people. And he says one of the biggest problems of two independent people is they don't need each other. Because they don't need each other, they get the empty nest, and you've been investing in your career, you've been investing in your family, and now you went from a kid-centered marriage to an activity-centered marriage. But your activities are totally separate because you're independent. And you float and drift away from each other because of your independence. My friend Stan was sharing with me, he went to one of the uh, marriage sessions that they had at Intimate Encounters down in Texas, he and his wife and they said it was so helpful to move not to codependence or independence, but to interdependence. They learned how in the second half of their marriage to begin to really connect at a deeper level, to begin to understand each other and to talk about dreams and fears, to be more honest with themselves and each other. He said it saved their marriage. I know five times through the book it certainly helped ours. See, abundance of time and abundance of possessions can hide real intimacy. And God says, I want you to have real intimacy. With me, with your kids, and with your spouse, and with the world. That you care about those who are hurting, and those who are dying, and those who are not fed. You care about the handicapped and those in pain. That's what God wants for you. That's what he wants for me. But often the abundance we seek hides the abundance we sought. So I think what God would say to you and me this morning is, do any of these things ring true? Do you have some apathy in your life that is being hidden? Do you have some real needs in your life that are under the surface? God would say to you, would you invest in some long-term investments? There's nothing wrong with these good things. You just need to go long-term. Would you rather have purpose or apathy? Would you rather 
really understand the needs of other people and speak into them or just go through the motions? Do you really want to figure out if somebody in your past or your present or your future has switched the price tags? Wouldn't you want to know what's real value and how to invest in things that really matter, make real long-term investments that put purpose and freedom into your life? God says, come to me and I'll teach you how. And even intimacy, that sounds like a a feminine word. That sounds like intimacy. I don't know what that is, but that sounds like something I don't want to do. But at some level, don't you want to be respected and known? Don't you want something deeper with God than just going through the motions? God says, this is it. These are the long-term investments I offer to you. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and I want you to hear the story. I told you I'd let you hear the story of Renee. Renee Lockie, at age 37, decided to make some long-term investments. She decided to change her life, not change her career, not change where she lived, but she decided to add a new sense of purpose to her life in the midst of a land of opportunity. Let's watch. Somewhere probably around high school, I made a decision that I wanted to go into medicine. I knew I wanted to be a physician. It was, a, it was a while before I settled on the specialty of obstetrics and gynecology. I drive to work each day really feeling blessed that I have the career I have, that God has given me a job that's a ministry. I get to walk with women and families through really, really joyful times and through some really challenging times. I think the problem for, for a long while was that my vision of what was freedom was not in line with what God says is freedom. I, I mean, I had a real turning point at 37. It's about three years ago. I've been in Austin for seven years. Been in practice as an OB-GYN for seven years. I had accomplished everything I had set out to accomplish. It was a really uncomfortable place to be in to realize that you'd accomplished your goals, and now what? You know, now what's next? And then to feel a sense of like a, just a hole, like an emptiness inside, as if something was missing, and yet not know what that is. As God realigned my values with his values, and showed me places where I thought I was free, but I wasn't yet free, that, that changed everything. Because suddenly there were some areas where I had to take some steps of surrender Imagining that those were going to lead to more restriction and less freedom, only to find the opposite was true. You can't go and look at another culture and not do this compare and contrast of like, this is what they have, this is how they live, this is what I have, and this is how I live. There are times when I would just sit in that and it would just break me. And I just realized that It's only by God's grace that I have anything more than they have. It's not because I'm entitled to it or I deserve it. And even if I say, well, yeah, but I earned it or I worked for it, then I would hear in the other ear, but I gave you the ability. I gave you the opportunity. I gave you the talent. I gave you the funding. I gave you the resource. I gave you the education. It's like, what do you have that I haven't given you? I was on a run and I just in a conversation with him just thinking about how might I change in response to what I had just seen, what I had just experienced. I'm just running and I hear God say, 
I want you to work like a doctor and I want you to live like a nurse. I basically just took my salary and I just sectioned it off and I said, well, this is, a, this is a, what a nurse would make. And then the remaining three quarters is his. And I felt like I said, that's right. That's what you share. When I have a choice about whether to save or whether to share and I get to bless somebody often behind the scenes and, um, and see the way that it's impacted their life and the reality is it feels right. I really live a very full life, a very satisfying life. And I feel like that hole that I had three or four years ago that I wondered what is it and how do I get it filled has been filled to overflowing in a way that I, I hope I bring a lot of joy to people's lives. And that joy I wouldn't have to give if he hadn't first given it to me. Now, after a, a presentation like that, you're waiting for a big ask. All right, this is where Chad comes up and tells us to give a bunch of money to church, right? Here's my ask. What does it look like for you to seek first the kingdom of God in your life? What would it look like for you to take the abundant life and to place it into the abundance of what you have in your time and your possessions? That's the big ask today. To find a greater purpose and a grander vision for your life and say, God, what does it look like for me to buy gold from you? And to accomplish that purpose. In fact, we are starting next week a brand new series called, called Honest to God. It's going to be about prayer. We're going to have prayer journals available. We're going to teach you how to pray in gratitude and how to pray in anger. How to pray in depression. How to pray when things are, are in abundance. And we're going to go for six weeks together in a journey of being honest to God about where we are. And I'm hoping that in that will be a journey and a, a pattern and a tool for you to begin to find that greater vision, that greater purpose for your life. So you're not going to want to miss the next six weeks, starting with Honest to God and the prayer journal experience we're going to all go through together as a church. Thanks for being here today. If you did come prepared to give us some offering boxes, but we would love to meet with you. Um, third door on your left is the hearth room. We'd love to put a name with a face. So thanks again, and good luck living this land of opportunity and seeking first his kingdom. Thanks again.